Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Three guys went fishing on a weekend. And uh, they all had young kids at home and married. And about an hour in, one of them looked at the other and said, you have no idea what I had to promise my wife to come fishing this weekend. And he said, I had to promise her I was going to paint every room in the whole house next Saturday. And the second guy looked at him and said, no, that's nothing. He said, I had to promise my wife I'd build a deck from the back door all the way around the pool and add a gazebo and a fire pit all thrown in all next weekend. They went on fishing, and all of a sudden the two guys realized the third guy hadn't hadn't said anything. So they looked at the third guy, and they said, what did you have to promise your wife to be able to come fishing tonight? fishing for this whole weekend. He says, well, I just set the alarm for 5.30 a.m. When it goes off, I wake up, I roll over and turn to my wife and I say, is it uh, fishing or sex? And she just said, don't forget the sunscreen. (laughs) There's this common view of marriage out there, unfortunately, in our society, that uh, marriage is the place where sex goes to die. And uh, that is... You know, we think of all the obstacles and the kids and the jobs and the pressure and the house, and we think that just sex goes away and loses its steam and its joy. But we've already busted that myth if you were here for the very first weekend. We looked at a bunch of uh, research uh, in our series that we're in right now from the University of Virginia, University of Michigan, and the Pew Research that resoundingly over and over again, and not just their research, but for decades, has proven the fact that married couples are much higher, have a much higher satisfaction level with their marriage and sex and more frequent sex than people outside of marriage. We're continuing our series today called Staying Engaged, in which we're looking at healthy relationships through the lens of what the Bible teaches us about marriage. And uh, I think that we would be remiss to not spend a day looking at one thing that is front and center in our culture today, and that is sex. Um, I love sex. I think it's fantastic. I wish there was a whole lot more time in life for it. And I want you to leave today feeling the same way. I want you to celebrate it. I want you to believe that God has a great gift for you. And I want you to also tease my wife because she's been doing the last three messages with me and she bagged out on me on this one. So, no, actually, she just did it because one of her best friends from for years and years and years is in town from Texas, and she didn't want to spend time getting ready for today. She wanted to spend time enjoying friendship, so I, I, I fully support her in that. But uh, even though she left me to ha- out to dry talking about this topic. So, the reality is, even though we want to have a great view of sex, a lot of us don't. We struggle with it. It's a struggle in our marriages. It's a conflict in our marriages. It's a conflict in our life. And I want to start by asking the question, where did your ideas about sex come from? Did they come from uh, parties growing up with friends who were viewing pornography and talking about sex uh, among boys and girls and experimenting with sex? Did they come from there? Did they come from um, uh, ladies for you? Did they come from men uh, joking crassly uh, about your bodies as sexual objects and teasing about that? Did Did they come from parents talking or not talking about it and churches not talking about it other than to say it was banned outside of marriage and giving you the feeling that uh, it was embarrassing or even a little dirty. 
Or does your idea of sex come from movies or romance novels that you've read and your experience of sex just frankly doesn't live up to what you see in those movies or those novels? Or maybe more seriously, maybe you were abused and used in a previous wanted or unwanted sexual encounter. And that's left you with baggage towards the issue. For many of us, it can be as just as simple as how we were teased or talked about or not talked about during our puberty years. Were you the one growing up during puberty where everybody wanted you and thought you were attractive? Or were you the one that everybody teased thinking you were ugly? Or were you the one that nobody said anything at all about? You see, all of those different experiences imprint upon us something about how we think about ourselves. And they also affect our view of sex and sex in marriage and how that is supposed to be lived out. I, like you, grew up in a very sexualized culture. In fact, the little small town I grew up in, Minnesota, was the center of the largest child pornography ring ever busted in the Midwest up until the time that it was actually taken down. And I, I, I remember that ring having drastically affected a bunch of my friends in very negative ways. Now, I waited for sex until after marriage, but even... Even with that, living and growing up in that culture affected me in two really uh, profoundly negative ways. I, early on, before really getting serious about my faith, uh, experienced the pain or the disillusionment of what it is like, the guilt or the hardness of heart that has to be there to gawk and flirt and treat another person as if they are an object for your pleasure regardless of what it does to them. And uh, I also began to realize the tremendous power of sex to draw a person into doing and being things that you did not want to do and be, even if it felt pleasurable while you were doing it. And then in the middle of that, I had a very strong conversion to the, the purpose of Christ in my life. And, and the religious environment I was in fostered a disdain for sex, Almost, in, almost implicitly for sex. I mean, they talked about it as sexual sin, but unwittingly it got to the point where the idea of even having an arousing thought about someone and their beauty seemed to be sinful and wrong. And so in my performance and shame-based religion, approach to religion, I nearly successfully shut down for a while all sexual feelings in my life and later on struggled and had to relearn how to feel the beauty of those things the way God wants them to be felt. Our purpose today is simply this, to celebrate God's good creation of sex and understand how he thinks about it. And hopefully by understanding how he thinks about it, to allow that to bring some healing to our negative views and to our difficult experiences and tension that we have in this area. And to lead all of us, whether single or married, into the best of being who we are as sexual beings because God created it and intends it to be amazing and good. See, whether we are actually involved sexually right now with someone or whether we are abstaining, the reality is our view of sex and how we think about this affects who we are. It affects the view of ourselves. It affects the view of how we look at others. It affects the view of our relationships and how they function. And frankly, it affects our view of God. To help us recognize maybe a little bit more our personal views and where they've come from. I just want to take just a moment to very, very quickly go through the three primary historical views that societies have had towards sex and religion have ha has had towards sex over the years. The first one is simply this. The first view is the idea that sex is a natural appetite. It's like food. 
It's like eating. We need to, we need to eat, right? So the argument goes, whenever we have the need, just feed it with whatever satisfies that need. It doesn't really matter. In fact, the reality is a variety of cuisines, a, a, a new taste sensations add joy and enjoyment to that experience. And therefore, the argument is forbidding the satisfaction of that natural appetite, especially by limiting, limiting its expression for years, is unrealistic. In fact, it's unhealthy. It would be like asking someone not to eat. Now, that's one primary view that's been out there, and it's probably influenced some of us to a certain extent. The second view is a little more negative. It, uh, it, it basically believes that sex is part of our lower nature, our lower physical nature, distinct from our higher rational and idealistic thoughts. And therefore, sex is degrading, it's dirty, it's a necessary evil for the purposes of propagation. Unfortunately, that's been promulgated in, in our cultures by many people and especially by some aspects of the church. We can see it as early as the third century in the church. There was this idea going around among a, a segment of the church in the third century that said, uh, as a married couple, you can't have sex 40 days before religious holidays and seven days after religious holidays. You can't have sex uh, during the daylight hours, only during the 12 dark hours of the day. You can't have sex during your period. You can't have sex on Sundays. And with all the rules, counted up one scholar said that it came down to you could have sex half the day for 83 days of the year now the question is who counts that kind of stuff isn't that amazing i don't know if i have the patience for that saint augustine who has a lot of wonderful things to contribute to us that are very biblical and sound actually fostered that idea himself by deciding that sex is what transmits original sin and he fostered that idea that that, that faith should mean that sex is dirty and a, an obligatory thing we do. And that is completely not supported by any aspect of the Bible. So while the first view sees sex as absolutely necessary and unavoidable, and the second view sees sex as dirty, the third primary view that pro- is, all these are present in our culture today, and affected of all of us, is that, that sex is a critical form of self-expression, that it's for the individual's self-fulfillment and self-actualization to meet their actualization needs in life. And so we should just basically pursue sex as an enjoyment that we do in whatever way meets those self-actualization needs for us. And many people, when we look at these three different views of sex, believe that the Bible's view of sex is the second one, that it's dirty. And that is resoundingly not true at all. God created sex and sexuality and called it very good. And man, is it ever. It's not dirty It's not dirty that we have to do just to have babies. It's not something we should be embarrassed about. It's not something we should be prudish about. It's not something we should shy away from. God created man and woman in a relationship and all the sexuality that goes with that and called it not just good, he called it very good. I mean, and he walked with them, the Bible tells them, in the Garden of Eden while they were naked, they walked together with God without shame. And the Bible even dedicates one entire book, the Song of Solomon, to celebrating the beauty of marriage and particularly celebrating love and sex in marriage and then using it also as an image of what our relationship with Christ is intended to be and can be. And the Bible actually commands married couples to have sex. Why? Well, we talked about it in the first message. 
a little bit, and we introduced the idea that the biblically marriage is covenant. And we define that as marriage is the binding together of two people in a self-sacrificing, loving agreement to live for the good of the other person. And God even built, interestingly enough, and we're not going to deal with this in detail because I was told by the, the couple people I had to review this message that it was a little bit too vivid. So, but uh, the fact of the matter is God built even into the loss of virginity physically the idea of covenant in a very beautiful, powerful way. But covenants, God commands on a regular basis that we remember our covenants. And we do that. We do it like last Sunday. We had communion to remember our covenants with him. And uh, remembering by remembering, we also renew those covenants with him. Now, why? Why? Well, it's because we need reminders, right? I mean, that's what half of what we do coming to church is you don't hear something new a lot of times. We need reminders. We need reminders because life starts going and we start to lose focus and it just goes by and we start to focus and forget to focus on the right things. And the reality is that God designed sex between a man and a woman in marriage to be a constant reminder of the covenant between them and the covenant with him of oneness and love and beauty. And it is a covenant renewal that we do every time we have sex. We choose each other again and again and again and only each other. And half the men who are married in here are going, can I have all those agains today? St. Augustine, while he was wrong in his definition of, uh, of sex transmitting original sin, he was right in this. We talked about this a couple months ago. He was right in his definition of sin, and it really helps us understand this whole sex and sexuality thing really well. See, we think of sin only as evil, as bad, as horrible, as awful things that we do, right? But Augustine argues, and I think rightfully so, that much of our sin in life is good that is disordered. It is disordered love, love in the wrong place, good in the wrong place, and it's destructive. And we know that. We understand that. We think about money, and we realize that money is good, but if it takes the wrong place in our heart, it becomes destructive to us. We think about food, and if food takes the wrong place in our heart, we get diseases, and we we become unhealthy. We have all sorts of maladies. If sex takes the wrong place, is in the wrong place of our lives, it creates destruction and problems in our relationship. We understand that. We even agree with that. But when some people hear that definition of sin as disordered love, and they think about sex, they go, well, that's really no big deal, though, and, and when I have sex. Because if sex is good, who cares if I choose it now or and sure, later may be better, and that may be the best, but it can't do much harm now. But see, that's the problem. Even when sin is focused on good, like sex, money, food, and work, disordered good, sin is no longer good. It is truly destructive, even as it may feel pleasant in the moment. It's like good drugs, misused. And we see that evidence in the reputable research we've quoted, quoted over the last number of weeks. And can, is it okay if I call that university up north reputable? Is that permissible? Okay, okay. But we've seen the negative impact, right? We've seen the studies over and over again say that living, living together before covenant, before marriage, and having sex before marriage decreases marital satisfaction in those areas and decreases the likelihood of marriages lasting. The studies show it. 
It's fact. It's out there, right? God created sex very, very good. But disordered, very, very good is still sin. And it has damaging consequences even while it may feel pleasurable and passionate in the moment. And we even get that, though, at a deeper emotional level. Because especially I've had people who were sexually active before marriage tell me this kind of stuff. That it, there's something we realize in sex outside of marriage that feels incongruent. It feels like good out of order. We, we end up in those relationships and we, we, we become vulnerable and we feel open and close and yet, uh, and yet we get up and the person leaves and they have absolutely no obligation. But yet we've got these feelings of closeness and this feeling of commitment that should be there because sex engenders a feeling of closeness. It, sex stirs and amplifies feelings of marriage-like ties. And if you had sex outside of marriage with somebody before marriage, you've really felt it. When you really liked the person and you had sex with them and they got up and they left quickly and you were going, they may not even have an obligation to call me back. And that disconnect of your heart was there. And the reality is for us to be comfortable in settings like that, we have to start to disengage part of our heart. And we have to start to harden part of our heart to protect ourselves from those feelings of just being used and left. For us to feel that connection and then all of a sudden they leave, it's hard for us to do. And we have to start viewing our sexual partners a little bit less as human and a little bit more as objects to fulfill our selfish pleasure for us to feel comfortable with that. We even feel that in our life. I remember the story of a woman who was very sexually active before marriage. And she had moments, she would describe moments of that activity before as genuine care and love. And she would, um, she would say that there were times when it was just physically pleasurable and fun. And, and she would say there were an awful lot of times where she felt used and left. In order to cope with that, she had to put some callousness on her heart to protect her feelings. She got married a few years later and had a wonderful man and was married and having a great time and sex was great and all of a sudden it became problematic and it was stirring up all sorts of weird feelings and it became really a difficult relationship between them. And in the process of healing and going to counseling and talking with people about it, she realized that even now that she was married, she was still putting up those barriers in her heart to protect her heart that she had put up before. And she still found herself holding back parts of herself. You see, before marriage, before marriage, that was self-protective. After marriage, it's destructive to the marriage because sex is designed by God as something to experience the beauty of it. It requires vulnerability and openness to the sexual experience to be, for it to be powerful and beautiful like it's intended and like our hearts intend. We get that. It also exposes a truth that we all know. But views of sex as being okay out marriage, outside of marriage that we hold actually intentionally undermine this truth that we all hold. You see, we believe the foundation of a happy marriage is faithfulness and loyalty. We even say it in our marriage vows, forsaking all others and keeping myself only unto you, Right? And no matter what your views of sexuality are within or outside of marriage, faithfulness is almost universally held as a core expectation in marriage. Faithfulness is not something, though, that we can turn on and turn off. 
Faithfulness is a character muscle we develop strength in. It is a habit we develop that is embedded over time of repeatedly choosing faithfulness over fulfilling our selfish desires, of restraining our desires for the love and for the best of another person. You see, even in our culture, we relate the term faithfulness almost 90% of the time to sexual behavior. So when you hear somebody getting a divorce because of unfaithfulness, you have rightly so assumed that their spouse had sex with someone other than their spouse, right? See, if we want faithfulness, if we want rightly ordered love so that we can experience the best in marriage, which we all believe is supposed to be there, then why do we approach finding a spouse by, by not exercising the very self-control that we need to have in order to have a happy marriage. There's incongruence there, isn't it? It's like, it's like somebody wanting to go into the army and choosing to skip boot camp and stay on the couch and then wondering why they can't carry the 80-pound pack and why they can't shoot straight and why they don't know what to do when enemy pressure presents itself. I mean, that's what it is. God isn't trying to withhold the beauty of love and sex from single people in his command that it belongs only in marriage between a man and a wife. He is just acknowledging that sex is powerful and beautiful and it provides one of the greatest opportunities for us prior to marriage to grow the muscle memory of this self-restraining faithfulness that's needed in order to have a great marriage and have great sex in marriage. You see, sex is the consummation of faithful love. It's not the beginning expression. It's the celebration of friendship that grows and leads a couple to the altar of the covenant of marriage. It's, you could use all sorts of metaphors. It's the pinnacle of the tower. It's not the foundation. It's the icing on the cake. It's not the batter. It's the best for last. It's the consummation, and it is also the regular renewal of that covenant of love in our marriage. And when it's disordered, it causes problems, no matter how fun it might be at the moment. You see, here's what I want to say. If sex has been out of order, if it's been disordered in your life, if you've already stacked the odds against you according to the research, I don't want you to walk away today feeling guilty. I don't want you to walk away feeling shame. What I want you to walk away today with is receiving God's forgiveness, His abundant forgiveness, wiping the slate clean and starting over wherever you are at and developing that muscle memory of faithfulness that He wants you to have. Okay, If you're single here, even if you never marry, abstaining from sex and faithfulness to God is one of the most beautiful ways you express the love of God because it combats humanity's natural sinful tendency to selfishly make people into objects of their pleasure regardless of what it does to them. Instead, it teaches you to sacrificially love for the best good of the other person and it prevents you from treating them as objects. The Bible goes on, though, with even more on the biblical view of sex, and it comes out of our passage that we've been using throughout this whole series, Ephesians 5, verse 31. It says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. However, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. As we talked about earlier, society frequently looks at sex as just a physical fun thing. It's nothing else, right? But sex is anything but just a physical thing. 
It is a profoundly spiritual thing. It is a profoundly personal thing. It is a profoundly emotional thing. It is a thing that encompasses our whole being and points to our relationship with God. And that's what that, this passage is actually saying. This term that's translated one flesh doesn't just mean physical. It's kind of a, a difficulty to translating a really picturesque language. It's quoting actually Genesis in the creation account. And it's talking about our entire being being one with another person. Remember, in the, in the creation account, we talked about a few weeks ago that God went along creating and he said, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then he created man and he said, this is not good. And ladies, he didn't say that man were not good. What he said was man not being, being alone was not good. And he created the woman. And he said it was very very good. And we see in the man's language and God's language in there picturing this idea that the woman completes him physically, emotionally, spiritually, personally, and as well as physical in the way God designed our sex organs to fit together. There is a completion that happens. Woman completes man. The differences between them together complete each other. And that's the picture that the Bible is giving. You see, the physical pleasure-only view of sex undersells the magnitude of the beauty that God created it to be. And it gives it such low, temporary, experience-focused expectations. Sex is covenantal love. It is oneness of the couple. It is the way we grow in oneness, and it is the way we begin to experience even more of the kind of oneness that God wants to have with us. It's a picture of our relationship with God. But if we view sex as a need, if we view it just as a hunger, it diminishes the beauty of sex, right? We fall into the trap of believing that the other person can fulfill our needs and give us what we want in terms of whether it's our needs of pleasure or whether it's our needs of security and significance. But the Bible's picture of sex is the idea of two people who are completely accepted, completely secure because of Jesus. And now we are free to give and receive love in the most vulnerable, most intimate, most literally naked way, giving not just the pleasure of our bodies, but giving ourselves to one another. And then when we do that, to reinforce and make even more beautiful the love that God already gives us. And finally, God, frankly, he just loves the pleasure of sex as well. He created it. And think about it. Even from a physiological standpoint, he created a, an organ on the women that his only purpose is sexual pleasure. It's the clitoris. He absolutely loves it. He loves hot, passionate, great-feeling sex. And he enjoys it when you experience it. Now, I know lots of couples who struggle with sex. And early on in marriage, a lot of times the struggle is around performance and whether it's passionate enough and whether they, you know, experience orgasm like they want. But when we realize the whole picture of God's purpose for sex, when we realize it's renewal and reminder of the covenant, when we realize it's an expression of our oneness and a vital part of us growing into that and realizing that oneness, the expectation of it always needing to be hot, rockin', performance-oriented sex changes. And it becomes this amazing gift of love we get to give. And whether it's a 10 or a 4, doesn't really make any difference. We get to give this wonderful gift of love. 
And I've even heard, I've heard a number of people say just even flipping that view from performance, from having to please, from having to have the ecstasy experience to just making it ministry to the other of love changes the anxiety level and increases the beauty of it and in the end actually makes the performance even better. But let's talk more about what causes problems for us in the sexual arenas of our marriage. I think we could categorize the problems in three ways. We could categorize them as personal problems, as relational problems, and technique problems. Now, technique is going to be for somebody else on another day in a seminar to talk about, or it's going to be for you reading one of these great books. There's some great books on it. Penner's The Gift of Sex, Rosenau's A Celebration of Sex, Lehman's book called Sheet Music for All You Musicians Who Love Sex, and, uh, and there's The Crazy Good Sex by Dr. Parrott. Um, the point of that is don't be prudish and don't be macho and avoid reading because the reality is great sex and the physiological, from a physiological technique perspective is not 100% natural for everyone. You need to learn it and it takes time to learn it. So let's talk about personal problems. Personal problems arise from our own negative experiences, right, and how we interpret them. Really, it's how we interpret it. What we end up believing about ourselves, what we end up believing about others and, and as sex as a result of those experiences. A couple I know that I used to work with has a story that's very similar to a large percentage of our population. She was sexually abused earlier in life. In order to deal with those feelings, she had to shut them down and forget them. She got married to a wonderful man and sex began to resurface all those feelings and it became very problematic because it brought up fear in her. It made it very difficult for her to engage in sex and she had this conflict between trying to figure out how to deal with her fear and trying to love her husband well at the same time. And as she got into counseling, began to dig deeper into those feelings, she realized that she really felt used instead of loved behind all that. And, and, and even further behind that, she felt like she was damaged goods, that she was only worthy of being used, only worthy of being not loved and treated that way because that's what abuse and abusers tends to make us think. We think we're worthy of the treatment we're getting and that's sometimes the way we cope with it. Even though she knew her husband adored her and he was so patient, she was struggling. You see, personal problems, whether they're severe like that or of abuse or whether they're something uh, just as common as I don't feel pretty, speak to our identity as people. How we think about ourselves, whether we feel secure, whether we feel significant, whether we feel loved or lovable. Sometimes our personal problems are even it's just as simple as the stress we have in our life. We, we have stress and the accompanying anxiety or depression that goes with it, that messes with our moods, or we just feel tired and we don't want to have sex. But sometimes even that really comes down to our, uh, how we feel about ourselves. We don't want to have sex when we're tired because... We don't think we can perform and please like we should. And so we don't do that or, or, or we're driven to the stress and tiredness because we don't believe we're significant enough so we choose to work instead of having a balanced, healthy life in our relationships. So how do we overcome that? Well, in the more severe situations, it requires a lot of work and forgiveness. Not ignoring the feelings, but rather grieving them like we talked about last week, not alone, but with God, knowing that God grieves those things with us. He created sex to be beautiful for you. If it's not beautiful, he's grieving the fact that it's not beautiful for you, 
right? And don't do it alone. And sometimes it, it's, it's best to even do that with another person because another person who can counsel you well and help can, and then can also help you connect those feelings to God for him to come and minister to them. We have a number of professional counselors who are really good at Quest. And, and if you want to get help in that, we can help you get help in those areas. Part of the healing is facing the pain and allowing God to begin to reframe whatever meaning for you is behind that anxiety, that pain, that conflict. That's easier said than done, but I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot more successful when you do it with a safe person who can deliberately connect you to God in the process of finding that healing. But there's also a reframing of sex from another perspective that I think is helpful. And that is reframing sex from getting your needs met and the experience of passionate pleasure that you have to give to your spouse, the whole performance side, to what we talked about earlier, making a choice to show love and care for your spouse. So Larry Crabb talks about this in his book, uh, Marriage Builders. And he talks about how this, even just this simple flipping of your focus can bring so much healing, flipping it from the need to experience orgasm or make sure your spouse does to just simply changing to say, I'm going to minister love to my spouse with deliberate actions of love, regardless of how great the sex is. I'm going to minister to them. And Crabb illustrates how, in many instances, he's worked with in counseling, how this has overcome the fear simply by helping the person who's struggling with fear, focusing outward instead of focusing on themselves, focusing on their spouse and giving love instead of focusing on protecting themselves from their fears. And he says it also helps because the regularity of having an experience different than the past negative experience gradually begins to create a new memory, a more positive memory that replaces the old. In a sense, it's changing your goal. Is the goal of sex to have thrilling, hot, orgasmic sex every time? Or is the goal to love and express your love, to renew your commitment, to express your oneness and that commitment and the beauty of that and to grow in that together? And let the hot come when it comes. And when it doesn't, don't worry about it. See, we can't let avoiding our fear of old memories be the goal, but we choose instead to allow sex to be part of the healing process for us. Because that's the way God designed it, to be part of the healing process and growing us in our oneness with our spouse and with God. So even if it's not great, minister, care for them, love them, and allow it to be all God intended it to be for you. That's personal problems, relational problems. They can be as simple as stress over the kids. And I'm not in the mood because things aren't settled, the house isn't clean, whatever's going on, job's not settled, there's stress going on there. It could be a fight earlier in the day between you and your spouse. It could be an ongoing perpetual issue that's gridlocked and you're struggling, frankly, with even trusting your spouse at the moment. And men and women respond very differently to relationship problems. I think actor and comedian, I don't always like his humor, but actor and comedian Bill Connolly, I think actually puts it in one of the more gracious ways. He says, apparently women need to feel loved to have sex. And men need to have sex to feel loved. And then obviously his joke, how do we ever get started, right? Right? See, sex is ministry and growing in oneness. And the reality is, guys, you need to read the books. And you need to take the time to slow down and listen and care and learn to learn good listening skills and care about the stuff that's going on in your spouse's world and resolve some of the stuff that's unresolved with the kids and pitch in and help with that just so they can be a little more free to be in the mood. And women, sometimes... Sometimes you just need to minister to your husband so he feels loved, 
even if you don't feel like it. So overcoming the problems is really, I think, could be summarized as a spiritual venture of allowing God to uncover how you are viewing sex in your relationship to validate who you are instead of letting God validate you. It goes back to Wendy's illustration a couple weeks ago. We so often approach sex like two ticks on a dog, trying to get our need met from the other person and perform well for each other. Instead, you need to learn to let God meet those needs so that you can be free just to love and not have to do it to get your needs met, right? And it also involves flipping your perspective from fear and feeling used to taking back ownership of your sex life and your sexual experience, regardless of the feelings, take back ownership to minister God's love and your love to your spouse. You see, it's harder to feel used when you choose to do the act as your expression of love, right? They're not using you. You're giving to them. The Bible also presents sexual delight as likened to a spiritual habit, a spiritual discipline. In fact, I'm going to read you a passage from the Bible. It's X-rated. We're just going to read it straight out of the Bible. God intends for this to be explicit. Proverbs 5. Should your springs overflow in the streets and your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. See, the Bible actually instructs you to meditate on your spouse and to cultivate a taste for their body and their beauty alone. We often get caught in porn, whether it's soft or hardcore, doesn't matter, whether it's an SI swimsuit uh, or whether it's going to a bar with scantily clad, big-breasted women or whether it's outright hardcore porn on video. It all violates the command of God to meditate and cultivate a desire for the beauty of your spouse, regardless of what that looks like to others. See, in their book, Premarital Sex in America, How Young Americans Meet and Mate and Think and Marry, uh, published by Oxford Press in 2011, uh, the authors are generous and euchre talk about the fact that porn affects almost everyone in our culture, even if you don't view it today. Because it sets up these crushing, unrealistic expectations for what we should look like and act like and be and makes your sexual partner become more of an object for your selfish pleasure and destroys the beauty of loving relationship. In fact, they would argue that it decreases your desire for sex. Like a drug, you need more and more to have the same pleasure all the time and you lose the ability to enjoy the beauty of what's there. Dr. Les Parrott is in his book says this, and I think sums it up well. He says, if the purpose of sex was limited to procreation and pleasure, it would merely be an animalistic act. But for humans, it's about relationship, and that's the key. It's a personal encounter, not just a biological action. Think about how we as humans have sex compared to other mammals. We are the only species that commonly copulate face-to-face, so the partners look at each other as they mate. Why? Because human sex is designed to be more than physical. Sex may engage our body, but it also touches our soul. And then I love what he says. He says, perhaps that's why G.K. Chesterton once said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You see, in sex, is sex pleasure? 
Is sex biological need? Is it covenant? Is it oneness? Is it a spiritual experience? Is it an expression of love? Is it a tool God uses to love and to heal woundedness? And the Bible's answer to all of it is a resounding, glorious, exciting yes to all of it. And what God is doing today is inviting all of us to an experience of love that encompasses all the good he intends, all the beauty in a rightly ordered way that doesn't bring harm, but it heals. So I want to invite you to pause for just a moment. I want you to ask God, what are you saying to me? Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? Where do I need to grow? Just ask him. Lord, we ask that you'd come and you'd help us surrender our view of ourselves, our view of our mate, our view of sex to you. Lord, that we would trust your good plan. We'd trust your good plan. And we'd experience the abundant blessing you want to have us experience. Because, Lord, you created it. And when we don't experience it, you're sad. And you desire to help us. So, Lord, I pray that you'd meet each and every one of us where we're at today. Again, if you're here, then that means that you messed up big time in your life. Then your step today is simply to ask God to forgive you and to receive that forgiveness because it's free, it's full, it's abundance, it's sure. It wipes the slate clean. And then you start from there, just moving forward. If you're here today and you're, you're one who says, I, I, I can relate to the fears. I've got fears. I was abused or whatever created your fears about sex, then, then God wants to come to you and meet you in those places. And he wants to calm those fears. He wants to grieve those fears with you and bring healing. And if you're here today and you're in a sexless or sex-strained marriage, Maybe the biggest step you can take today is to turn to one another and pray and commit to God that you're going to allow him to come into your life and you're going to deal with the personal and relational issues that have gotten you to the point you're at in your marriage, in your relationship. And maybe as part of that, maybe the next step is counseling. If so, then contact Wendy and she'll get you in in touch. She'll get you connected with either her or one of the other professional counselors that we have to help you walk that healing process out. And, And listen, if you don't think you can afford counseling, you can. One of the main reasons we have Quest Care here is because we want everybody who wants the opportunity to grow to have that opportunity. Quest Care can help you afford that. So don't let that be an excuse. Counseling is normal. Normal, healthy people seek help. Unhealthy people choose to not seek help 
to try to hide the shame because they have not experienced the gospel in that area of their life, the fact that God loves you extravagantly and he wants to love you extravagantly in that area so you have no need to hide anything else. And healthy people don't resort to pride saying, I got to fix it myself because we need each other. Healthy, normal people get help. So don't shy away from that today. As we continue to worship, I just want want you to continue to take the thoughts that you came to mind when you asked God. And I want you to frame the words of the music as your expression and your prayer to him to help you in that area. Let's continue to worship. First service, I messed up and came up at this time at the wrong time. This time I'm doing it intentionally. Because I feel like some of you believe that God can't overcome the pain of my abuse in the past that makes a problem for me in marriage and sex. And you go, can I ever be free of that? And some of you think the problems in your marriage are, are large enough that they can't be overcome. And God wants to say, no, I can't overcome that. I can touch you right where you're at. If you'll give me your best and let me heal you. It may not happen fast, but it will happen. God will meet you as you give your best to him. We're going to receive our offering now as well. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your presence. Even now as this offering is a symbol of us giving our first and best to you, Lord, I ask that you'd help each and every one here. Give the first and best of our hope for our marriage, the hope for our sex life, the hope for the healing of the wounds of our past to you. And that you, Lord, would continue to pour out your generosity on us, your kindness to us, your healing upon our lives and our marriages. Thank you for this opportunity to give of ourselves to you. In Jesus' name. I just let God continue to speak to you through the music. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.